I do think that there's a lot of theater going on on both sides. The president is obviously playing to his base in picking this fight and maintaining it. And CNN has decided that this is, you know, an opportunity for them to try to employ a legal process to outmaneuver Trump at that game. You can't blame Trump. Yeah, look, uh, I'll be the first to say that I think his speech is boorish and, and ungentlemanly and so on and so forth. That's all that being said, I don't blame Maxine Waters for the people who showed up at Tucker Carlson's house. I don't blame Trump for the people who, you know, say terrible things about ethnic groups. This idea that they've emboldened them just doesn't hold up. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and a Christmas children's book called The Sled. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, after a tense back and forth between President Trump and CNN reporter Jim Acosta at the White House press conference, there was a brief struggle over a microphone between Acosta and a White House intern, and the White House revoked Jim Acosta's press pass. So in a series of tweets, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said, as a result of today's incident, the White House is suspending the hard pass of the reporter involved until further notice. This conduct is absolutely unacceptable. It also completely disrespectful to the reporter's colleagues not to allow them an opportunity to ask a question. President Trump has given the press more access than in any president in history. Well, just this week, CNN filed a lawsuit against Trump and his administration over Jim Acosta's White House press credentials, citing violation of the First and Fifth Amendments, hearkening back to an older case. So there is a lack of respect for the office and the press. And how is this latest incident impacting the relationship? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss President Trump's relationship with the press, the recent removal of Jim Acosta's press pass at the White House, and CNN's lawsuit. And here today to discuss that topic is Charles Glasser, Jr. He is the professor of media law and ethics at New York University, former global media counsel for Bloomberg News, and a constitutional litigator. Charles spent 12 years as the global media counsel for Bloomberg, where he was responsible for pre-publication review, legal and ethical issues, and training over 2,000 reporters in more than 120 bureaus around the world on legal standards and journalistic fundamentals. Welcome to the show, Charles Glasser. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And our next guest is Thomas Clare. He's a partner with the firm of Clare Lock LLP. Tom's practice is devoted to litigating complex business disputes and vindicating clients against high-profile reputational attacks in print, broadcast, and online media outlets. Tom is perhaps best known, however, for representing high-profile clients who are targeted in hostile media investigations or the subject of false statements in the press. Welcome to the show, Tom Clare. 
Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as we get started, uh, Charles, I want to lob the first question over to you, kind of just asking a little bit of background on, you heard me introduce this subject matter. Uh, what's the constitutional framework that we're dealing with here in the First and the Fifth Amendments? What's this lawsuit about? Uh, and how do we look at this in a legal framework? Well, that's a great question, and I think that uh, everybody is really trying to figure that out. Uh, cheerleading aside, um, I've read uh, the papers on both sides, and uh, uh, it's an interesting question. Does a uh, individual reporter have a, quote, First Amendment right to a hard pass? Uh, I personally think that that's not uh, Ted. Ted Boutros is the very skilled litigator on, on uh, representing CNN. I think uh, personally that the due process question is uh, if there's a winner for them, that's it. Uh, th there's one case that they cited. Uh, it's called the Cheryl case. You've probably read it. We've heard about it. And as litigators will do, uh, one side says uh, that it speaks directly to the to the matter and the other side says no it's actually off point it, it, complicating this matter is less the legal framework uh, than the political and factual framework. As you may know, the reason uh, that the White House gave, initially at least, uh, for taking uh, Jim's pass away was his behavior, uh, that you know he uh, <clears throat> struggled with this young lady to keep the microphone. And uh, I have to say that on that ground, more than a few very experienced uh, journalists have uh, kind of not bought that. Jack Schaefer and Bob Woodward this morning talked about uh, the behavior in the, in the press room. That being said, even if that does go against, uh, quote, the norm of behavior in the White House press uh, briefing room, the more important question, for Acosta anyway, I think this, this case, and, and, and certainly uh, Tom can uh, straighten me out, but I think it's going to be a matter of, of due process. Was there a arbitrary and capricious basis for uh, taking this pass away? Or is it in fact, because this is the really narrow issue, or is it in fact entirely within the discretion of the president? So, Tom, where, how do you see this? Is the Cheryl case uh, seems to hinge on, on due process, as Charles has said, but uh, certainly CNN is arguing the First and the Fifth Amendments. Uh, is this a taking? Is it a violation of Jim's First Amendment rights? How do you see it? Well, I largely agree with uh, with Charles' analysis and, and also the notion that this is, once we strip away a lot of the, the theater around it, um, a due process issue. And I, I suspect that, that when we get down to the, the final legal adjudication of it, that will be the ground on which this will turn. You know, clearly the White House was depriving somebody of something they previously had and uh, articulated a basis for doing that. And the, the court is going to have to get to the bottom of what level of discretion the White House has to admit people um, for the purpose of attending these press conferences. And there's a lot of issues that are kind of swirling around uh, in that due process framework. Um, on the one hand, you have uh, CNN and Acosta making the argument that this is somehow retaliatory viewpoint discrimination, that they, they don't like his reporting or don't like the impertinent questions and that he is uh, being targeted for this 
treatment in a disparate way because of that um, that point of view that he brings to his reporting. On the other hand, you have a legitimate, it seems to me, need that uh, people might recognize or a court might recognize of a, a functioning White House to be able to control uh, conduct in a press conference in a way that is, you know, both respectful of of people's, you know, physical uh, space when you're talking about resting control of the microphone and so forth, but also having an orderly press conference and, you know, putting that the, those issues all in the mix for what's really going on here is what I think the court is going to have to get to the bottom of. But the other the other piece of this, which I I think is interesting and hasn't gotten a lot of, of media attention, is you know what are the standards that are in place for credentialing um, the media to attend the White House press conferences or to have passes for access to the parts of the White House that are not open to the public? I could not walk in there without such a pass. And and you know to the extent that those standards are were being violated or not being violated or he meets the standards or he doesn't. Um, and if it was taken away for an arbitrary, capricious reason, um, you know, that's why I, I do agree with Charles that I think this will be decided on, on due process grounds. I do think that CNN has has tried um, to overstate this argument uh, by making it an individual right and trying to dress it up in in things that um, are a bit of a stretch. And and I understand from a, a theater reason why they would invoke those arguments. Um, but I, I think you know the lawyers uh, that operate in this space, and I, I suspect the judge will zero in on the due process issue more quickly. Well, to respond to your point about Cheryl in the case. Yeah, he's a pernicious character. He punched another reporter, and, and that was one of the reasons that they used to justify to, to deny his pass initially. But it, that case did seem to turn more on, on due process. How do we look at the press pass? Do we look at the press pass the same as, like, you know, you get a, a permit from a city to do something and, and it can't be taken away without, without that due process? Is that the basis for this, Charles? I think they're stuck arguing that. And I think Tom's word theatrics is very well taken. They are going to try and make this. I mean, again, I read the papers in the motion for the TRO, um, and they want to argue that it's that it's really about Trump's dislike uh, for uh, Acosta and he doesn't like the reporting and uh, the complaint and the motion for the TRO is, you know, loaded with uh, statements that Trump has made both on, on Twitter and uh, at press conferences and, of course, his rallies about, you know, CNN and the fake news and all that sort of nonsense. Well, isn't that all the capriciousness of it? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I, I to be honest, I have to say, again, as a litigator and not not really, uh, uh, you know, taking a side here, I think that the government made a, a sort of a strategic mistake insofar as the press secretary Sanders uh, said that the uh, altercation with the intern was the was the basis, and as I alluded to earlier, uh, a number of journalism ethicists have said that that wasn't really the problem, that the issue was uh, that Acosta kept going and and he wasn't asking follow-up questions. He was, in fact, making statements. He was like Jorge Ramos using the opportunity to lecture the president. And uh, I think as far as facts go, that's where the, the court is really going to 
have to dig into facts. I had a question for Tom, and that is, I'm curious, as a litigator, why do you think that they named the individual Secret Service agent as a, as a defendant? It's a really good uh, good question. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was likely to make sure that they had a defendant in the case who was sort of a, a party a party and able to, you know, file pleadings and and take a position on the security and physical access aspects of of this whole thing. If that conduct was going to be asserted as a, a basis to be able to have someone whose responsibility in the case was to to speak to that aspect of it. It was a little bit puzzling. Yeah, but the removal of the hard press pass isn't the uh, Secret Service. No, but he is the person who said to when Costa came to the White House and he said, here's my pass, that Secret uh, Service agent was the one who answered him and said, you're denied. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's quite possible. And maybe what Tom said earlier makes me think that uh, it also could short circuit any defense claims of uh, immunity. You know, suing the president uh, is not easy. It's hard to get service on. Well, him. it's not just the service, but, you know, I mean, the, uh, <laughs> you remember during the Monica Lewinsky scandal that Lanny Davis tried the Soldiers and Sailors Act uh, to keep Clinton from being deposed, arguing that as commander in chief, he couldn't be interfered with that. That didn't you know, that was a Hail Mary, but it'll be interesting. I, I kind of wondered if it was a way of uh, almost a discovery tool. By making them a party, it's easier, of course, you know, to demand discovery than a than a third party subpoena. But I also think, kind of knowing the uh, the Gibson approach to to litigation, their belt and suspenders effort to make sure that I mean, can you imagine with all the the fanfare with which this lawsuit was filed and promoted by uh, by CNN and Gibson and others associated with this in the press? To get dismissed on some sort of a technicality that you didn't name an individual who had deprived Acosta of access to the physical grounds, you, know, you just can't swing and miss on something like that. And so whether it was legally necessary or strategic or tactical, I, I viewed it as sort of belt and suspenders to, uh, to defense against any of that. But we'll see how it plays out as the, as the court finishes this hearing. How much, Tom, does it hurt Acosta's and CNN's case that he'd crossed the line and was lecturing the president? I mean, if he had been asking a legitimate question, you know, that has been being asked in the general public, would that have helped him? Maybe. I do think there's an important distinction here to be made, and, and this goes directly to your question, between um, what is a, a matter of tradition and a matter of, of the, the way in which these press conferences have traditionally been handled by other administrations and what is legally significant. And a, a lot of what not just in this particular Acosta incident, but in other incidents that, that the press has been complaining about with this president is uh, is more in the former. It's a break from the way that they're used to covering a White House and the way that the tradition has evolved with those sorts of things and the manner in which you ask a question and the decorum and handling follow-up questions and mic time and all of those sorts of things you know, those do not rise to the level of legal significance where you have this vested right to have it done the way it's been done for the last 20 or 30 years. 
Um, and I don't think that a lot of rank-and-file journalists really understand that. They, they believe, not from a legal perspective, but they believe that there is an entitlement to a continued level of access and a continued uh, approach of the way that they have always done it. I do think that uh, going back to, to your question, that the optics of this are hurt for him by the lecture and by whatever we want to make of the microphone piece of it and the, the ethics of taking more time uh, and not asking legitimate follow-up questions. Um, it just it just hurts the optics for CNN and for Acosta in a way that it, on the other side of the equation, you know, you have the optics of President Trump's tweets about CNN in particular and his singling out of CNN historically and some of his tweets and, you know, fake news and, and all of those things. I suspect when push comes to shove, neither of those things are going to be legally significant, and it's really going to get down to how the, the court characterizes this right of, of access uh, to the physical premise and then the ability to function as a reporter in the press conference. On the other side, Charles, what effect is the fact that – or presumed fact, alleged fact that the video has been doctored by the White House and released? Yeah, I, I think we ought to correct or at least uh, flag that uh, uh, for a second because I, I do not believe – and I've looked at this carefully – I do not believe the video is doctored. Doctored implies a uh, – <clears throat> and I don't mean to defend one side or another, but doctored implies a, a an intent to deceptively edit, uh, you know, uh, go back to Katie Couric uh, uh, intentionally uh, inserting blank spaces of, uh, of people to make them look dumb uh, in a gun control debate. That's not what happened here. It was uh, – you have to remember – that the video that uh, Sanders selected, I'm just trying to be fair here, was in the MP4 uh, FLV uh, format, and it was converted to the GIF or GIF format. And what happens in that case is the frame rate changes. So things naturally get or look speeded up. And I don't think that this was doctored, and I think that's static. I think that's uh, more atmospherics and theater. Uh, when it gets right down to it, going back to a point that Tom raised, and I, and I think the word decorum is really going to be central, uh, at least any substantive argument about uh, the president's discretion. I could not, for instance, I've been in cases, I've, I've argued for court access where you know, we wanted reporters <clears throat> to be able to uh, attend uh, closed cases or other other sensitive cases or even get TV cameras in certain cases. And it's a tough road to hoe because uh, a decorum is well within a judge's framework. And, and I can see a number of judges on the, in the District of Columbia sort of asking themselves the same question. You know, judges, for the most part, are not very tolerant of monkey business in the court. Right. I mean, uh, uh, Tom, I think you'd agree if a reporter stood up and started barking questions, they'd be shown the door in a heartbeat, if not held in contempt. It's not quite analogous with a White House press conference, but uh, I think most judges are going to be sensitive to, uh, you know, the idea of decorum. Uh, the counter argument that the left will certainly make is that Trump being Trump has 
you know, thrown decorum out the window with his tweets and his language and, and so on and so forth. And that's a good I, I, point I, to get to, but let me interrupt here and uh, throw in a quick interruption. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to have to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and we're joined by Charles J. Glasser, Jr., professor of media law and ethics at New York University, former global media counsel for Bloomberg News as well, and also constitutional litigator Thomas Clare, partner with the law firm of Clare Lock LLP. And right before the break, we were talking about decorum, and, and Charles, I think, correctly pointed out what my next question to Tom, which is, you know, the opposite slash of that pen is that you know, Acosta may have have not treated Trump with decorum, but there's little argument that Trump has treated Acosta with decorum. Well, I think in a legal framework that it's asymmetric, right? Uh, I, I, I don't think that a White House that is trying to maintain order and control over its uh, press conferences where it's managing not just Acosta, but you know dozens of other reporters and news organizations, each of which have a different format and media. And there's all sorts of sensibilities that have to be managed in terms of time and a limit of access to time. You know, those are sorts of of logistical constraints that. Uh, every administration has to deal with and may prioritize those things differently and may define uh, decorum differently, much in the same way that, to use Charles' excellent example, that a judge, different judges might run their courtrooms differently and allow a different level of formality or informality. But the same is, tr- is true. Nobody gets to say, well, you know, this judge is harsher uh, and he's more laid back. Therefore, it justifies a you know an outburst from the gallery that would get somebody ejected from courtroom because of the the judge's demeanor. No, but we've also all seen the difference between civil court and criminal court. I mean, the the insanity of a master calendar criminal courtroom where you've got the prosecutor and the public defender and side deals and attorneys up in the jury box and people talking with the clerk. The this insanity of a criminal courtroom compared to the decorum of a federal court where the judge is sitting up on the marble, uh, you make a good point. But really, is there an, you know, Charles has said, and kind of, I think, correctly pointed out that that Trump has tweeted about uh, specific issues with CNN. And and, uh, how does that play into it? Not just the way that they run the conferences. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think it's it feeds into CNN's argument that it it provides ammunition for CNN to say this was not something that was based on some neutral principle of decorum, but rather we can look at these statements from the president and say this was uh, an extension of his viewpoint disagreement with 
CNN in particular, and, and, and Acosta's reporting on them. And so I, I, I think it feeds into that. And like every good litigator, CNN is, you, you know, is milking that for as much as, as they can, much in the same way, I might add, that the opponents of the administration's travel ban were relying on Trump's tweets and statements in an effort to try to characterize what the travel ban did or didn't do. And you know, I think it's, you know, as, as you always say in court, you know, if you've got the, the steak, you sell the steak. If you've got the sizzle, you sell the sizzle. And I think the Trump tweets are, are probably more sizzle than steak here, but sometimes it's sizzle that wins cases. And how does that play into the First Amendment? You know, we, we take now talking about content, all of a sudden we're talking a different amendment. Well, uh, if I may, Trump's uh, uh, obvious and there's no secret uh, about his dislike for CNN. And I do think that Boutros, Gibson and CNN, you know, they're trying to bootstrap the obvious dislike for CNN into the First Amendment side of the argument. But to be fair, Acosta is called upon. He's not ignored. You know, the president gets to choose which reporter uh, he chooses, uh, you know, to ask a question. And I'm not sure the number, but I think Acosta has been allowed 22 opportunities. Um, And I can tell you that I have friends in that room who would love the opportunity you know, to ask questions and they or haven't been chosen yet. So I, I do think that it's it's Trump's tweets and Trump's stuff, like Tom pointed out in the in the first travel ban case, uh, they were successful in, in leveraging that into uh, into something. But at the end of the day, the First Amendment argument is going to have to hinge on almost, uh, you know, I don't want to say actual malice, but it's going to have to hinge on what was going on in uh, Sanders or Trump's head uh, as to why the pass was revoked. And if they want to really try and probe that motivation and argue that it was content-based, I think they're going to have a very, very hard time doing that, especially when the record uh, and the video, uh, undoctored or otherwise, uh, shows that Acosta was uh, certainly, well, let's, let's be generous and say bending the rules or pushing the envelope. I don't really think the First Amendment argument is is either strong and and to some degree I'm not even sure it's it's a it's a question that a jury can answer. Tom, have we have we reduced this down to a a tempest in a teapot? Is this the theater that we've kind of regularly mentioned? Is is this uh, the way that a reality television star gets theater and ratings? Well, you know, there is a lot of theater here uh, on both sides of this to your question about the First Amendment. I mean, a lot of the rhetoric of the legal proceedings and the First Amendment and the right of access and the people's right to know and all of that, you know, as a legal matter, as a purely law review legal matter, um, is not particularly uh, relevant or on point. I mean, one of the things that the First Amendment tells us is that journalists do not get a special hall pass to disobey rules or laws of general applicability, that they are responsible for their behavior in the same way as everybody else is. And just because you have a press pass or you have access to, to something, the First Amendment is not magical pixie dust that somehow immunizes 
people from any sort of scrutiny of the way they behave or or the like. And so I actually think, I mean, yes, there's a lot of theater on both sides here. And this is the culmination of uh, this brewing battle between the president and the CNN that you know, both sides decided to join now. And uh, I do think that there's a lot of theater going on on both sides. The president is obviously playing to his base in picking this fight and maintaining it. And CNN has decided that this is, um, you know, an opportunity for them to try to employ a legal process to outmaneuver Trump at that game. I think we've just about reached the end of our program. So it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information, if you'd like to pass that along to our listeners. But to kind of end it on a, a more serious note, there have been uh, allegations that the whole brouhaha that we're talking about has resulted in extremist groups or people or uh, more alternative groups attacking journalists physically. And, you know, are we stoking that? Is that, uh, is in your final thoughts, I'd kind of like to have you address that issue. So Charles, let's turn it to you first. Yeah, I've read that a lot. Um, and I have to disagree with it. Uh, as you may know, I write a biweekly column for the Daily Caller on, on media law issues. And one of my recent columns was that uh, I, I think that's, a, that's, that argument falls apart. And on the law, there has to be a connection of, uh, you know, proximity and, and geography and, and, and time uh, to blame a speaker for the uh, bad acts of other people. And uh, it, that, that is a slippery slope. And, and the fire in the theater comes. Well, that's, remember, that's dicta, but it's true uh, in the theater. Um, but you can't blame Trump yeah, look, uh, I'll be the first to say that I think his speech is boorish and, and ungentlemanly and so on and so forth. That's all that being said. I don't blame Maxine Waters for the people who showed up at Tucker Carlson's house. I don't blame Trump for the people who, you know, say uh, terrible, you know, terrible things about ethnic groups. Um, this idea that they've emboldened them just doesn't hold up. Unfortunately, we have had idiots among us for a long time. Good. And your contact information, if you'd like our listeners to reach out to you? I'm uh, online at uh, charlesglasser.net, and I'm easily found uh, on the Google. Great. G-L-A-S-S-E-R. Yep, .net. Wonderful. And Tom? Uh, sure. In terms of the final comment on that, um, you know, I, I agree. And obviously, I agree completely with Charles about the, uh, you know, the incidents where there's physical violence against the press. Uh, it's obviously terrible, but it's, it's and, and not to be condoned, but it is not as if that those people are not subject to the, the normal punishments of the law because Trump happens to be in office. I mean, everybody is accountable and, and were, were accountable before Trump was elected and will be after, long after he's gone. So I don't see the connection. I don't see the tone at the top argument holding much weight for that. And as someone who operates in this space, I get very tired of hearing about the war on the press because uh, the president tweets certain things or engages in 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 language that is designed to uh, you know to stoke people's passions about about the press. There are countries in the world where there is a legitimate war on the press and and crackdown by by authoritarian re regimes. That's not what's going on here, and I think it, it demeans those sorts of legitimate struggles that journalists around the world face to suggest that every presidential tweet rises to that level of, 
of slighting journalists, which, you know, all things being equal in this country, they have it exceedingly well. And the fact that we're talking about, you know, this aspect being adjudicated in a federal court under a rule of law is just a testament to how well our system does function. And I, at the risk of, of, I know, running over and all, but I, I, I had to second that to the degree that uh, uh, one of my classes is mostly international students. And I asked them, I polled them, uh, especially the ones from China. And I said, how many of you think, what would happen rather if somebody did this uh, at a press conference with Jiang Xiaoping? And the Chinese students laughed out loud. They, they said, first off, the air would be cut and the reporter would disappear. And as you know, in Mexico, they don't tweet mean things about you. They kill you. They kill you. And I think that, oh, President Trump was mean to me is a very, it's an awfully uh, uh, parochial and, and narrow view. Uh, you're quite right. Try this in Saudi Arabia sometime. Yeah. As we just witnessed. Yeah. Right. Tom, you were going to give us your contact information. Sure. I'm um, easily found at my law firm's website. That's www.clairelock.com, C-L-A-R-E-L-O-C-K-E.com, uh, and uh, easily found on uh, the Google as well. Great. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your participation today. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you like what you hear today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.